1: Welcome again to Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. This is your host, Alan Pierce. I'm an attorney with Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, and we are happy to bring you another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. Before we get to our guest and our topic, I want to thank our sponsor, PI Now. Find a local, qualified, private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit PInow.com to learn more. Today, we're going to discuss what I've, I believe is an interesting case, certainly from my perspective as a Workers' Comp. Uh, attorney. It is a case that both has workers' comp issues as well as significant legal issues that transcend my areas of expertise, and it involves international law and issues of sovereign immunity and very, very interesting concepts such as those. My guest today is attorney Ted Folkman of Folkman LLC, a law firm in Boston. Ted has been a practicing attorney since 2001, He is a member of the American Law Institute and also co-chair of the International Law Section of the Boston Bar Association, where he also serves on the amicus uh, committee. He is uh, recognized as an expert on matters such as the matters we'll be discussing today. And those involve the case of my client, Cynthia Merlini, who has become our client. And we're going to discuss her particular claim against the government of Canada before we get into it, Ted, I want to welcome you to Workers' Comp Matters, and it's been a pleasure to work with you in this case as it continues to proceed through the court system.
0: Thanks. It's been fun to work with you, too.
1: All right. So to get us started and to get our listeners acquainted, this case all started in January of 2009, so it has really been 11 and a half years since the date of January 22, when Cynthia Merlini suffered an injury at work. And what makes this case somewhat unusual, at least from my perspective, is that her employer on the date of injury was in Boston, Massachusetts. She worked in an office in downtown Boston, and she worked as an administrative assistant at the Canadian consulate. She was assistant to the consul general who was based in Boston, Massachusetts. So she was an employee of the government of Canada. She was a Massachusetts and and continues to be a Massachusetts resident. Her particular category of work under the Canadian system of employment, she was known as locally engaged staff. So when consulates or embassies have locations around the world, they are staffed both with the citizens of the country of origin, starting with the ambassador or consul, down through whatever diplomatic or other personnel. And then, of course, they have uh, clerical and other types of uh, non-diplomatic personnel that they hire locally. And Cindy was one of those. So on January 22, 11 and a half years ago, she uh, tripped and fell at work, and she suffered some fairly serious injuries to her neck and back and his With the exception of trying to return to work shortly afterwards, she's been unable to work ever since. So that's where the story begins. At some point, she contacted me to represent her at the Massachusetts Department of Industrial Accidents. It turns out that the government of Canada, as a federal employee of the government of Canada, she, as a locally engaged staff person, did receive initially some benefits under their federal workers' compensation law, known as GECA, G-E-C-A, Government Employee Compensation Act. They, at some point, refused to pay her any further benefits after she uh, was out of work for just a short number of weeks. Without going into the details of that, the rights of locally engaged staff to challenge claims decisions are significantly different than the rights enjoyed by Canadian citizens. And she found some significant legal roadblocks in her way in contesting the decision of the appropriate claims uh, examiner that worked for the government of Canada. So being a Massachusetts resident and a Massachusetts citizen, and because she was injured in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, she sought a remedy under the Massachusetts Workers' Compensation Act, which provides for workers' comp coverage for anybody who's hurt within the borders of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So she initiated a claim herself without representation because the government of Canada did not carry state workers' comp insurance that other consulates or embassies might have carried, or in fact did carry, nor did they register as a self-insured employer. So her... And ultimately, my position before the Department of Industrial Accidents is that they were in the they were an uninsured employer. And in Massachusetts, like many other jurisdictions, we have a trust fund that pays benefits. It's the trust fund actually stands in the shoes of the employer and provides workers' comp benefits as if there had been insurance. So we brought a claim against the trust fund. The case went to a hearing or trial. She was indeed awarded workers' comp benefits despite the fact that the Government of Canada and the trust fund's attorneys contested whether the Massachusetts Industrial Board had any jurisdiction over a sovereign foreign nation, and they asserted a lot of other defenses as well. The long, short end of that story is that ultimately the award of workers' compensation benefits was reversed by the Workers' Compensation Reviewing Board. Again, among the issues of reversal is that the government of Canada as a sovereign nation could not be held responsible for failing to provide uh, workers' comp insurance and that they could not be subjected to the jurisdiction of the industrial board and uh, they might otherwise be immune under sovereign immunity. Ted was engaged once it became clear that this case had veered out of the traditional workers' comp framework into a framework of international law which at that time I knew almost nothing. And now I just know a little more than nothing. Uh, But Ted knows all about that. So he handled an appeal of the denial or the reversal of workers comp benefits before the Massachusetts appeals court. And unfortunately they did not see it our way and instead found that the government of Canada could not be reached in a workers comp matter such as this. So, At that point, Ted, my active involvement in arguing and advocating for Cindy, that Massachusetts, as a matter of public policy and as a matter of law, owed her benefits through the trust fund, you had another theory that you have since embarked upon. So why don't I turn it over to you from there and explain what your theory of recovery for Cindy became.
0: Sure. Well, thanks for that good introduction to the case, Alan. So in Massachusetts, if you are an uninsured employer, you are liable to the employee without any proof of negligence for the harm. Basically, and you, you can tell folks more about this than I can, Alan, because it's really a workers' comp matter. Basically, the bargain that the statute creates is that workers give up their common law rights to sue their employers in return for access to sort of a very simple and straightforward system for getting benefits when they're injured at work. But the flip side of the coin is if an employer does not get insurance, then not only is the employer liable for the injuries in the ordinary ways, but the statute actually takes away a lot of the defenses that an employer otherwise would have. So for example, an employer who's injured does not have to prove that the uninsured employer was negligent. The employer can't put the blame for the accident back on the employee and say, you know, you yourself were careless. So it's a very strong statute in favor of employees, and my thought was, why don't we just sue the government of Canada under that statute? The thought being that there's no question that they weren't insured, the statute makes them strictly liable, that's it. The difficulty or the real issue in the case was what's called foreign sovereign immunity. So our courts have a rule, and courts all around the world have a rule that says, basically, you can't sue a foreign country in another country's courts. That's the general rule. And, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to have that rule. If you think about, you know, American embassies and consulates overseas, we really don't want them to be dragged in to foreign courts, except in unusual cases. And so in order to encourage other countries to treat our consulates and embassies the way that we think they should be treated, we give the same respect and uh, what's called comedy or uh, cooperation to foreign governments that are doing things here. It's not an absolute rule. There are a lot of exceptions to the rule, and the, the exception that I focused on was what's called the commercial activity exception. The idea here is that if you're a foreign government acting like a foreign government, doing governmental things, then you can't be sued in another country's courts. But if you're a foreign government doing commercial things, things that anybody in the economy could do, then you're not really acting as a government and you, and you can be sued. So, for example, if a certain country has a state-owned Oil company and uh, you know it's it's selling oil in the United States and there's an oil spill. Well, it's acting just like any oil company, so it can it can probably be sued for injuries resulting from that commercial activity. Or if a foreign country owns, let's say, an apartment building somewhere in the United States and it uses part of it as a, an office and it rents out part of its tenants, it's acting commercially just like any landlord, and it can be it can be sued for its commercial activity. So so my thought was, well, Canada hasn't bought insurance. It's done pretty much exactly what any employer in Massachusetts might do, which is just fail to do what the law requires, fail to buy insurance. And by the way, you know, Ms. Merlini is not a governmental type employee. She's not doing super secret work for the Canadian government. She's She doesn't have a high level of responsibility within the hierarchy of the consulate. She is an administrative assistant, just like any business uh, might have an administrative assistant. In fact, when she was injured, she was putting out coffee and tea for meetings, doing the kinds of things that a secretary and administrative assistant in any private business would do. So my theory was that Canada was, first of all, acting as any commercial uh, business might act when it failed to buy insurance. And Merlini, for her part, was a commercial employee doing things that were very similar to what she might be doing if she were working for a private business. So I thought we had a very good case to say that Canada should not be immune from the jurisdiction of the U.S. courts. That was the basic idea.
1: Okay. And before we take a break, Ted brought a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit in U.S. District Court, which is the First Circuit, We're going to take you after our break through the interesting legal proceedings once that complaint was filed and an answer and a motion to dismiss was filed by the government of Canada. But before we get that, we're going to take a brief break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes with our guest, Ted Folkman. We'll be right back. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up to date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. All right. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion with Ted Folkman. Ted, where we left off, you filed a civil complaint in U.S. District Court. And as part of the responsive pleadings by the government of Canada, they obviously issued an answer to the complaint in the form of a denial of all the allegations. And procedurally, what did they next do to try to put an early end to your lawsuit or our lawsuit?
0: So actually, Alan, they never answered the complaint. In federal court, if you say that the court lacks jurisdiction – you have the right to do that before you answer the complaint. So Canada did not, in fact, answer the allegations. And until today, it has not answered the allegations. What it did instead was it filed a motion. The main point of the motion was to say that we, the government of Canada, have foreign sovereign immunity. And so the U.S. court does not have jurisdiction over us to hear the case. They asked to have the case dismissed on that basis. Canada brought in a very large law firm, uh, an international law firm, to handle the case I think because the immunity issues that they were raising were you know, pretty far out of the realm of the ordinary for the workers' compensation lawyers that had been representing them in the Department of Industrial Access. So they filed that motion to dismiss, saying that there was no jurisdiction, and then the burden was on us to answer that. Interestingly, Canada did not offer any evidence in support of its motion to dismiss. And what I mean by that is that What they did was took the position that if even if everything Ms. Merlini said in her complaint were true, the court still lacked jurisdiction. And that, I think, was a kind of a risky move because we made very specific allegations about the nature of her duties that were meant to show that she was, in in essence, a commercial employee and not a governmental employee. So what Canada was doing, in effect, was saying, even if that's true, you still lose which is, you know, a, a, a sort of a high-risk, high-reward strategy. You know, I, I think that Canada did have one very strong and good point, and it was a new point, point, that, you know, hadn't really been developed in the earlier cases. Basically, there are a lot of cases out there where employees, not in the workers' compensation context, but in other sort of employment contexts, where employees have sued consulates and, and have sued embassies on theories like age discrimination or uh, sex discrimination or failure to, you know, breach of a contract, you know, wrongful termination, those sorts of claims. And in those cases, basically the rule that emerged was if you're a commercial employee doing things that ordinary employees at ordinary businesses do, then you can bring those claims. And if, on the other hand, you're a foreign civil servant or if you're a governmental type employee, then you can't. Canada, I think, knew that 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 was not going to be a fruitful avenue for them, given what we had alleged about Ms. Merlini's duties. So what they did instead was something pretty new. They said, your claim is not based on Ms. Merlini's employment. It's not based on the fact that she was a secretary rather than some other kind of employment. What what it's really based on is our decision to apply our own workers' compensation law rather than Massachusetts workers' compensation law in all of our embassies and consulates all around the world. And that's a governmental decision. That's a sovereign decision, and so that's why we're immune from suit. So that was really the challenge, Alan, that we had to meet in opposing uh, the
1: motion. So, what did the uh, judge at the um, district court level do to the motion to dismiss?
0: <laughs> well, the judge at the district court level granted it right away. He okay. there was no hearing. We did file our you know a written opposition, but the judge did grant Canada's motion which meant that we were in the position of having to appeal.
1: Okay. And so uh, if you didn't appeal, she's um, completely out of luck civilly. And obviously the workers' comp claim had been disposed of in our industrial board and our Commonwealth courts. So you did appeal and it went to the U.S. Court of Appeals. And without getting into the whole history of it, there, were, there was an initial decision. And then tell us uh, about the subsequent decision.
0: Yeah, the Court of Appeals is a panel that hears cases in panels of three judges. We did prevail in the Court of Appeals. We got a decision by a two-to-one vote that said that, no, the case is not based on your governmental decision-making, Canada. And the rationale for the decision really was that foreign governments are not allowed to point to the purpose of their activities when they're talking about foreign sovereign immunity because you could always say something has a governmental or sovereign purpose. Instead, what they have to do is focus on the nature of what they did. And we were able to persuade the court that the nature of what they had done, failed to purchase workers compensation, was entirely commercial. So we did win in the Court of Appeals, which was a good victory for Ms. Nolini. Canada did bring what's called a petition for rehearing by the entire court. So rather than having the case heard by a three-judge panel they wanted to have the, court, the the case heard by all six of the active judges on the court. And that motion or that petition was denied. So at the end of the day, we uh, had won a decision from the Court of Appeals saying that there was no foreign sovereign immunity, at least at this stage of the case, and sending the case back to the district court for further proceedings.
1: And the government of Canada took one last stab at trying to uphold or reverse the um, reversal of the dismissal. And they filed what's known as a writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court, which to me as a workers' comp lawyer, I never thought I would have a case that started in a typical work injury fashion in any way have the type of international or constitutional issues that would ever get its way to the Supreme Court. So tell us about their uh, petition or writ of certiorari and... uh, the decision of the Supreme Court about that? Yeah, so
0: so Canada did, as you say, ask the Supreme Court to review the case. Uh, Supreme Court review is quite rare, just statistically, you know, a very small percentage of cases get reviewed. But this case actually was, I, I think it's fair to say there was a, a significantly higher chance than usual that the court might have granted it. And I say that, because, first of all, because the party seeking review was a foreign government. Second of all, because the, The decision of the Court of Appeals was a split decision, two judges to one. And the judge who dissented from the decision, Judge Lynch, is a well-regarded and very good judge. And thirdly, because when the First Circuit denied the petition for a rehearing that I mentioned a minute ago, they did so in a three-to-three split vote, which is unusual, and in which the, the judges who dissented from the decision said things like, this is a case of exceptional importance. We believe this case should be heard by the Supreme Court, et cetera. So we did think that there was a significantly higher chance than usual that the Supreme Court would grant the petition, or at least ask the U.S. government for its views before deciding what to do. So we did oppose the petition, which is not something that you sort of routinely do in the Supreme Court. A lot of times it makes the most sense to let the court know that uh, you're simply waiving your right to respond, letting the court take a look at the case just on the strength of the the other side's papers. But in this case, we thought that a response made sense. So, So we did file a response to the petition. The court process of deciding what cases to review and what cases not to review is a bit of a black box to outsiders. We don't really know what the justices talk about. When they have these uh, conferences where they decide what cases to hear and what cases not to hear, we don't know what the vote was. What we do know is that when they discussed the case or when the case came up for discussion in May of this year, there weren't at least four votes on the Supreme Court to hear the case. And so the the final decision from the Supreme Court was uh, that the First Circuit's decision stands, which means that the case goes back now to the district court for the proceedings.
1: All right. So, um, you know, for our listeners, unfortunately, there is not yet an end to the story. So, we're going to leave the case of Cynthia Merlini versus the Government of Canada as a bit of a cliffhanger as to where it will go. But as of May of 2020, as um, Ted said, the Supreme Court of the United States denied certiorari, which puts the case back at the trial level before the district court judge for further proceedings, whatever they may be. So, I guess all I can say is stay tuned, and uh, when this case finally reaches its resolution in one way or another, uh, we will certainly update and have Ted back on Workers' Comp Matters, hopefully with a uh, happy result from Ms. Merlini. But this is and has been a most unique case of the intersection between employment law and international law, and how the foreign sovereign immunity act interfaces with local united states laws and this is not just could be precedent for workers comp uh, but as uh, ted mentioned these cases do arise in the setting of unfair employment practices we know that certain foreign governments must comply with our minimum wage or other wage laws they may be a consulate from a country in which they don't have a 40-hour work week or allow for vacations or time and a half etc so at what point can a foreign government be held responsible for complying or not complying with local laws is uh, one that is fraught with issues so any uh, closing thoughts ted as we proceed and wait for the next proceeding to take place and your thoughts about the the principles that this case so far through the uh, appellate process in the federal system has Starting to shape your your practice in regard to these issues.
0: Yeah, well, I think I think it's an important case, Alan. I think that workers, foreign governments, do more and more business in the United States, one way or another, whether it's state-owned enterprises, consular and diplomatic employees, and so forth. I think that it's important that foreign governments know that they they do have some exposure to the U.S. courts when they are accused of violating employment laws or breaching contracts or doing other things that are, you know, purely commercial. You know, there are a lot of other areas of foreign sovereign immunity law where, you know, things sort of more seemingly important on the global scale, you know, Holocaust, restitution, or human rights cases and so forth. But uh, these cases like Ms. Lini's case uh, are really important because they, they address the rights of American workers and American businesses. Being a foreign government, does provide a very, very significant amount of protection from jurisdiction here, but it's not all encompassing. It's not a blanket protection. And so I think it's important that that principle really be established. I think that this is really a, what we call a case of first impression. In other words, it really hasn't come up before when we talk about the interaction between the FSIA, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and workers' compensation law. And my hope is that workers' Compensation Authorities around the country will take a look at it when they're trying to decide what their policy is about foreign uh, missions, foreign embassies, consulates, other foreign government employers complying with uh, workers' compensation law.
1: And for all your efforts and your expertise, I want to thank you and our listeners. I hope will thank you for educating us on a very unique set of facts and a very unique legal concept that hopefully will result in further clarification as to the roles and responsibilities of foreign governments that do business in the United States and how to protect our citizens who work therein. So having said all of that, I want to thank Ted for joining us today on Workers' Comp Matters and thank our listeners for listening and go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network. Hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk.